What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael Pina. Now, Michael, first of all, Happy New Year, but also, of course, kind of a somber New Year with news that former NBA commissioner David Stern died at age 77 on Wednesday, a few weeks after he had suffered a, a brain hemorrhage uh, in New York City in kind of an emergency situation. Now, Michael, I know all the tributes kind of poured in yesterday. It seemed like everybody got in on the action a little bit. Uh, I'm curious, you know, when you're looking back on Commissioner Stern's 30-year career as the head of the NBA, which really spanned most of the 80s, the 90s, um, the 2000s, and then a little bit of the 2010s, what is your sort of biggest memory or uh, what's your go-to scene involving David Stern uh, as you maybe covered him or as you just experienced it as a basketball fan growing up? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously sad news. I think David Stone was such a titan in in elevating the NBA to the heights that we're currently enjoying it at right now. Um, I just think he was a priceless figure. And, you know, if I'm power ranking the league's most important all-time people, he's probably in the top five, maybe even the top three, which is pretty wild considering he never dribbled a basketball. Um I mean, I don't really have anything super specific about him. I mean, it's just he was a visionary, uh, a shrewd businessman who who didn't care about anyone's feelings when he made a business or marketing decision. You know, in reading all the obituaries, words like bully and dictator appear quite often, but there's still this warmth about him and this uh, admiration, I feel like, from a lot of people who wrote those obituaries who knew him. Uh, you know, there was this duality with David Stern on issues like race and labor. And as uh, Harvey Ayrton wrote in the New York Times, Stern worked pro bono on a 1970s anti-housing discrimination case in northern New Jersey, which later resulted in a settlement that the Times would call groundbreaking. So he, he, he did that before he was commissioner. And then he also inaugurated a dress code that players viewed as racially insensitive. So he he was a very... Uh, Mercurial isn't the word because I think he was very straightforward with people, but he was a polarizing figure and uh, the league certainly wouldn't be what it is today without him. Yeah, I think what I kind of go back to with my stern memory is actually like Adam Silver's first kind of State of the Union uh, press conference as commissioner because Adam was stumbling over his words. He was speaking very quickly. He was a little bit nervous. And I, I found myself sitting there thinking, wow. I have never seen an NBA commissioner like this before because, of course, the only other one who had ever seen was David Stern in that environment. And when Stern was up in front of the entire media, whether it's at All-Star Weekend or the NBA Finals, it was a legitimate show, right? I mean, if you had a confrontational question, he was going to give you a confrontational answer. If you wanted to question him or the league's policy, he was going to you know, go right back at you. But at the same time, he always had a gleam in his eye. He always had a, a sly smile. I mean, he was really, uh, you know, in my eyes, a performer, uh, not unlike some of the, the biggest stars who were mm-hmm. in the NBA, whether it's Magic, Michael, LeBron. Uh, I think he had a level of charisma uh, for a businessman that you rarely see. And it's not to diminish Adam by contrast. I think Adam, when I go to his um, 
his State of the Union addresses, it's usually like going to a college course, right? I come away more informed. <laughs> uh, he's like the ultimate professor, right? But with Stern, uh, it was very much like he was, uh, you know, acting on stage. And the same deal, I think, for a lot of fans when they watched him during the NBA draft, right? He puts his hand up to his ear and he just eggs New York City to boo him more, right? Uh, again, best. you know, a little bit of acting chops uh, in there as well. I thought his defining characteristic, though, was sort of, you know, just his love of the fight. And you described it with maybe being on both uh, sides of the issues when it came to, uh, you know, maybe minority rights or or, uh, treatment of African-Americans at various stages of his career. It did seem like he was just itching for a fight at all times. And I think it's so telling that some of his adversaries were the biggest, most respected people in the game. He fined Michael Jordan for wearing sneakers. Uh, he fined Greg Popovich like $500,000 for the load management thing. He fined Kobe Bryant uh, lots and lots of money for the homo- uh, homophobic slur, uh, you know, I think in 2012 or 2013. And he fined Mark Cuban, who I think for a while was like the NBA's most cutting edge owner, like 20 times millions of dollars total, right? So you're talking about champions. All four of those guys are champions. Uh, all four of them have the league's best interests at heart. They're major figures. Uh, you could say maybe the greatest player of all time, maybe the greatest coach of all time. And yet Stern has no problem whatsoever kind of picking a fight with those guys publicly and punishing them publicly uh, by hitting them in the pocketbook. And again, it's just something that we really couldn't see from, say, Adam Silver or maybe any other uh, NBA commissioner as well. I think that's kind of what set him apart. But I think the dictator and bully stuff goes a little bit too far because he was a very, very smart uh, and shrewd marketing executive. And most of what he was doing, uh, especially in some of those fights I'm describing, he would label as good for the game, growing the sport, taking it globally, positioning it the best for television audiences. I mean, look at the Popovich thing, right? He, he came down on Popovich because it ruined or spoiled national TV games. And ultimately, that's what uh, you know, he thought should have been the priority over maybe you know, polite or good relationships with, with a, uh, a quality coach. So I do think behind you know, some of his fits of madness, like some people might want to uh, portray them as, there was a firm commitment to the NBA's business goals, their long-term global uh, expansion goals. Uh, and I do think that uh, you know, to a certain degree, he might have been crazy like a fox. Yeah, I I go back to this quote that Mark Stein wrote uh, in the New York Times in his obituary by Mark Mark Cuban. Uh, He was incredible to to me, even when he was yelling at me. And that kind of just sums up the David Stern experience, I think. And, you know, you talked about the fact that he was just such a visionary as a businessman. And I think he really deserves a ton of credit for making the game as global as it is. You know, there would not be a Joel Embiid, a Nikola Jokic, a Giannis Antetokounmpo, a Luka Doncic if there wasn't a David Stern. And David Stern's understanding that, you know, if you increase the population of talent and you increase the, increase the viewership, like the product is just going to be that much better. I mean, could you even imagine an NBA right now without an international presence? Like the league is just so much more rich, so much more entertaining and thrilling because of that. And I think that that might be his greatest legacy if there is any one great thing to look at with him. Uh, Because, I mean, when you're reigning for 40 years at anything, you're going to make mistakes and you're going to have successes. And I think the successes obviously outweighed 
the mistakes in this case. For sure. I mean, I can't even imagine this podcast without the David Stern influence. I mean, what we talk about all the time, Open Floor Globe. We love everybody who's listening in Australia, uh, you know, Hong Kong, Europe, all, you know, all these various places. I mean, some of those people are American expats, right? But a lot of them are just uh, homegrown basketball fans in those communities who probably were introduced to the sport as kids. Uh, and it was probably because of, you know, in one way or another, actions that David Stern took. So, you know, certainly the appreciation factor uh, on that side uh, is huge for me. I think the maybe the most fun way to spin this forward, Michael, is to ask how should the NBA honor David Stern, right? Because we look at like the Larry O'Brien trophy. I mean, that's the finals trophy. That's what everyone wants. That's named after a former commissioner. But I think even diehard guys like us, you know, who are talking about NBA all day, every day would maybe struggle to list off <laughs> Larry O'Brien's biggest accomplishments as commissioner, right? And if that's the best trophy you've got, uh, do we just rename it the David Stern Trophy? Pretend like Larry O'Brien never existed. I mean, that seems a little bit awkward. Does Adam Silver? <laughs> yeah. uh, does Adam Silver maybe uh, cast a statue of David in the uh, in the lobby of the NBA's offices in Manhattan? Do they come up with a new trophy uh, to represent this in-season tournament? I mean, how can they properly honor? David Stern in sort of a formal way. Yeah, it's tough because as you said, like there's everything has basically already been covered. And so, you know, I think a statue outside, I actually, in in thinking about this, I thought that a statue outside MSG, just because he grew up a lifelong Knicks fan, uh, would make some sense. I think maybe not at the NBA offices where I don't know how many people are venturing over there to uh, spot out the lobby. But uh, yeah, like you, you, there's no, there's already an award for the finals MVP. There's already an award for the finals for the championship. Uh, I think maybe the David J. Stern midseason basketball reasons tournament might have a good ring to it. I don't know if that, what do you think about that? Does that I'm a sound? little n- nervous on that one because what <laughs> if it doesn't stick, right? And that's, that's a horrible tribute. It, it needs to be long lasting. Yeah. And I also worry like, is Dolan going to be involved in this Knicks Madison Square Garden statue? Because that might not come out the way that we want it. You know, this is this is a tough question for the NBA. I mean, is it something where, is it as simple as they raise a banner with uh, DJS into every arena and it just kind of hangs, you know? Sort of like sometimes they have the, uh, you know, the, the black stripes on the jerseys with the initials uh, when owners pass. I mean, could that be something where, you know, he just sort of hangs over every NBA game? That could be properly symbolic. Um, But yeah, I don't know. Uh, Let me ask you this. If they just flat out change the Larry to the David, would you have a problem with that? I wouldn't. I'd be like, that's great. Go for it. I, no. I I mean, I don't think I would have a fundamental problem with it or lose sleep. I did like when Kawhi Leonard called it the Larry OB. That that warmed my heart a little bit. Um, But no, I mean, that, that would be fine, I guess. Or even just, you know, thinking right now out loud, like, Putting his initials on jerseys in the lower left-hand corner of someone's jersey uh, permanently as a patch or something like that might be uh, an interesting tribute. But, you know, it's like the Sacramento Kings named an entire street after him because he kept the team in Sacramento. Um, I don't know. He's he's uh, His impact is... Uh, has been humongous and, you know, I'm glad that I don't have to 
figure out how to. <laughs> you're glad you're not an NBA executive him? who's trying to figure this <laughs> exactly. one out. Was he the fifth NBA commissioner? I think. What if we retired the jersey number five across the entire league? What about that? Oh, that's. I mean, that's that's interesting. I don't know how many people would get it, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> going over some people's heads. Why don't executives wear jerseys on the or jersey numbers on the back of their suits? That's a, a time-honored question that we need to have answered by the NBA. This is a tricky one, and I'm excited because I think someone like Adam Silver, you could tell from the thoughtfulness of of the message they put out uh, on Wednesday, the bond between Silver and Stern. And I also thought one of the you know, the highlights of the end of Stern's tenure, and I think some people would accuse him of sticking around too long. But the one thing that he did do was line up a very clear succession plan. And he made it you know, crystal clear in his last couple of years that that was part of what he viewed as his job or his uh, duty for the owners is making sure there was a capable executive who was seasoned in that role who would take over from him. And so Adam had hands-on experience throughout that last lockout. Uh, they they put him forward at various points uh, in front of the media, so he got a little bit of training on that front. Um, and I do think that all things considered, especially when you look at the the Donald Sterling saga, uh, that transition, you know, Stern's vision for Adam stepping quickly into the role and kind of carrying things forward, uh, it came to fruition, you know, very well. I mean, he handled himself quite well early in his tenure, um, and the league has uh, you know exploded from a financial standpoint uh, under Adam as well. So. I do think that someone like Adam not only feels uh, a personal bond with Stern, but also a debt of gratitude. And I'm sure he's been thinking for a long time about how to honor him. And I I can't wait to see what he comes up with. Uh, And I do think it's something important. Maybe it's a little bit corny that we're spending, you know, 15 or 20 minutes about, you know, how could we, uh, you know, honor the legacy of, of somebody who never even, you know, dribbled a basketball in a game once. But like you mentioned at the top, outside of Michael Jordan and, and Bill Russell and a few other people within the league, you know, Stern is on the Mount Rushmore uh, in what we're talking about for uh, how everyone across the globe experiences modern basketball uh, and tributes uh, are warranted in this case. Hey, on this topic of uh, commissioners, uh, Carrie uh, emailed into openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com, and he writes, Hey, Howard Beck recently did a Commissioner for a Day podcast, and it got me thinking. What would your top items be if you were commissioner for a day? Mine would be to eliminate charges, to shorten the season to 58 games, uh, and then to make the last couple minutes of each game more fun, so no live ball timeouts, quicker replays. Uh, If you guys could make any changes, what would they be? So let's say Adam Silver had a sick day this week, Michael, and you got called in (laughs) to replace him, and uh, but you had full dictatorial uh, capabilities at your disposal. What are your first three line items? All right. So from the top, I'm, I'm eliminating basket interference. As soon as the ball hits the rim, it's live. Like we, ha- it, it's, it just makes the game so much more uh, wait, entertaining wait, and unpredictable. Wait, wait, wait. Is, this a, is this like a Bam Adebayo fan club thing? Are you just picturing him <laughs> swatting basketballs off the rim night and day? Is that what's happening? That would be so glorious. But no, Bam was not in my mind when I thought this. I mean, every time I watch a FIBA game or an Olympic game when they can grab the ball after it hits the rim, it's just like it makes it more exciting. And I hate when the ball's in the cylinder and someone tips it and we have to see if there was an imaginary, if it crossed the imaginary line or not. And it's it's terrible. I hate it so much. And so that's the first rule I would get rid of pronto. Um, I also, you know, I want to get rid of halftime. I don't like halftime. I don't know who likes halftime. It's too long. 
I am not entertained by, I mean, no disrespect to any, there's a lot of great halftime entertainers, so I don't want to say I'm not entertained by them, but. All right, you're fired. Halftime is great, man. Come on. (laughs) Halftime is essential. That is ridiculous, but uh, I will say you, you wrote a great profile of a halftime performer whose name is slipping me right now, so I want to oh, plug your Oh, it's Christian piece. and Scooby, and he's part of the Open Floor Globe, so just realize yes. you have uh, both Christian and <laughs> Sorry, his wonderful Christian. Chihuahua families just barking back at you right now, okay? <laughs> okay, so that's that's number two. There's no more halftime. Um, the other one, the last one, I would like for one night a week for there not to be any NBA games. So oh. I don't know what I don't know what night that would be, but as someone who covers the <laughs> league and is just like drowning uh day in day out with, you know, there's like 10 games one night, 8 games the next, like it's just it's too much. I think the coverage would be better if we let the people who cover the league uh you know, give them a little bit of a mental break. Uh, once a week, so that would be my third one, and I'm, that's obviously very just you know self-serving, but I think that it would be for the best for everyone. I love it. So you want a basketball Sabbath, but there's no mental breaks <laughs> during the course of games. We're just gonna run them straight through, no halftime. Um, <laughs> exactly. Okay, but mine are are well-worn topics, so I'll just go through them quickly. Number one, reseeding the playoffs. I would be all for that. If we had to cut the regular season, I guess I'd be okay with that to make sure we had the very best playoff format. I would like expansion. I think we're ready. Uh, I wrote a piece uh, this week about the NBA in 2030, what it might look like 10 years from now. And it was fascinating to realize there's been no expansion in the NBA uh, or even relocation at all during the 2010s. I mean, it was a real period of, of stability, I think in part because the you know the financial stuff took off so much over the last five years that you know some of the quote-unquote dire situations from the past were no longer dire. And uh, the most recent uh, collective bargaining agreement basically guaranteed profitability for all these teams so they didn't need to move. Um, But I would love to see Seattle and Mexico City or Seattle and Las Vegas um, or even Las Vegas and Mexico City. I mean, just give us two more teams. Let's get to 32. Uh, Let's just jazz it up a little bit. And then I like Kerry's idea of quicker, smoother gameplay. you know, late in games, especially, we got to get rid of the refs with the headsets and the monitors. It's just so whack. It's so like 1995 technology. <laughs> we need to be a forward thinking league with it, at the NBA. And so I'm just getting rid of the courtside monitors, getting rid of the headphones. If, you know, somebody in Secaucus has to make every single review call late, that's fine. We're making them quick. We're getting back on the court and we're reducing the number of timeouts late in games too, for sure. Uh, I want to see your five versus my five. Uh, for the final three minutes as unobstructed as possible. I I love that last one. I'm all for it. I need I need the games to be over sooner is is the big thing for me. Now that you've gone after halftime and instituted a basketball <laughs> Sabbath, Michael, I'm getting a sense right now in 2020 that it's just no holds barred for you. You're going to break out some of your biggest, most whopping ideas on us here at the Open Floor. And that brings me to our next section, which is Bold Takes. It is a new year. Um, we start fresh mentally. We take a clean look around the league. I'm sure you're feeling refreshed after you know the nice holiday break, uh, uh, you know, the little post-Christmas lull. So I think we should exchange a few bold takes, a few bold predictions on what's to come here in 2020. What do you say? That sounds wonderful, Ben. All right, you go first because I can hear the scorching actually on my end. I don't know <laughs> if it's something with your phone call or what's going on, but I can hear the heat. So go ahead. 
All right, my first one is I hope you don't hang up on me. Uh, I think that the Houston Rockets will win the NBA championship this season. They're going to win the Larry slash David? They're winning the first ever David J. Stern championship trophy. They're going to hold it overhead. It's going to be glorious. James Harden will avenge. uh, I don't know what he's avenging, but he will win his first NBA championship. And So uh, they're going to give him the trophy for going out in the second round, or they're just like an exception, (laughs) or what's happening here? They're actually going to win. So they're they're winning four playoff series I, okay you're gonna have to give me their path what's the path to, to doing it who are they beating in each round let me hear this okay i don't have a specific path for you i just know that i made the preseason prediction that the rockets would win it all and i'm not a coward so i'm sticking to that and look okay. i think that no no real quick just to set yeah. this up okay if they're gonna do this if the playoffs began today it would be houston dallas four five okay so I think they can take Dallas, no question. Yes. Second round is Houston Lakers. Um, I think you're going to need a couple ankle twists to help you on that one, okay? Not impossible, but I think you're going to need a little help. Western Conference Finals would be Houston Clippers because Clippers would be the three seed at currently. I think they they take care of the Denver Nuggets. Houston Clippers, I th- I'm definitely taking the Clippers in that one, but if some, by some miracle... They get through the Clippers. Then they're probably dealing with Giannis uh, coming out of the Eastern Conference. I'm looking at those series, man. I only feel comfortable with them winning that first-round series. The rest of them (laughs) sound pretty daunting, don't they? This is a bold prediction for a reason, Ben. But I will say, you know, there's... They're a good team, so we'll have it there. They have the best offensive player in the league. Uh, I feel like they've started to figure out ways to combat the, uh, you know, def- defenses that are just going to trap James Harden 40 feet from the basket or as soon as he crosses half court. They've done some interesting things most recently in a win, a statement win over the Denver Nuggets. Um, but if you just look at their five-man lineups, like when they play the, their best players, they're extremely good. Like their net rating with their number one five-man unit is 13, plus 13. Their their number two five-man unit is plus 20. Neither of those units has Eric Gordon in it, who's been hurt. And they just have the the experience together of, of losing a uh, tough playoff series with just about everyone still there. So I don't know. I, I like them. Um, obviously, the Russell Westbrook thing is going to be very interesting in the playoffs. Uh, I, I love how you slipped that part in. Here's what I'm going to do. Just, Here's yeah. what I'm going to do. If the Houston Rockets win the title, I will buy a Russell Westbrook Rockets jersey for one member of the Open Four Globe, but I will ship it to them. It has to be someone here in the United States because I'm not paying DHL to get it to you somewhere else. But we will have a contest for Open Floor Glow members if the Rockets win the title for a free Westbrook jersey. I will autograph it personally um, if that happens. Actually, you probably don't want that. That would diminish its value. I will autograph the tag, which you can cut off and then uh, just wear the jersey <laughs> clean of scribbles. Michael, I'm going to go tit for tat with you, okay? I've got my own Rockets prediction. It's slightly different than yours, okay? I think by the time the 2020-2021 season starts, so we're saying October, at least two of Mike D'Antoni, Daryl Morey, and Russell Westbrook will be gone from Houston. What do you think? I think you're safe with D'Antoni. I mean, he's 
he's basically just like a, a lame duck. It feels like at this point with the whole contract negotiation and him not getting what he wanted. And so it feels like this is his last year, unless they win the championship as I believe that they will. Um, Daryl Morey. Yeah. It's, it, it's a little tricky with him and everything that happened in the preseason with China and the amount of money he costs his organization. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, it's that's going to be tricky. But he he had an opportunity to leave to go to Philadelphia, um, not too long ago, and he stayed and he stuck around. And uh, you know the opportunity to I think he knows how difficult it is to to secure a player as good as James Harden. And if you want to win a championship, then uh, I don't think he'll leave on his own. Uh, so like I could see Dar- this being Daryl Morey's last run with the team. Russell Westbrook's another thing. I mean, he's just under contract. I don't know who's trading for that. I don't know how they would get off it. They don't have assets to package along with it. Uh, so I think they're stuck with Westbrook, but D'Antoni okay. so is probably out. Yeah, yeah. here's ahead. what I'm picturing. They're not going to win the title, first of all. I'm, I'm feeling very confident about that. <laughs> um, I also think that you can't just slip in the Westbrook and the playoffs factor at the end when you're talking about the Rockets. I feel like that's going to be the whole deal. And I think the media is going to be hyping that up, heading into the playoffs to an extraordinary amount, right? Because he's had so many stumbles other places. This is supposed to be his fresh start. So what does it look like? And I also just fundamentally do not trust their ownership group to make rational decisions, especially in the middle of heated losses, right? So I'm sort of picturing a situation where they do go out in the second round. It could even be like a worthwhile loss. Like they just push the Lakers to seven games and LeBron's better, you know, something like that, where Fertitta just loses his mind because it's, you know, another humiliation for him and he promised better and this, that, and the other thing. And the Warriors weren't even in the way this time and now what? And it's just like a house cleaning. It's like, okay, D'Antoni, you were already gone, so you're gone. And then it's either Maury, I've you know I've been mad at you for nine months now I can finally do something about it, or it's Maury, you told me that Westbrook was going to be able to do it in the playoffs. He didn't do it in the playoffs, so now you have to trade him no matter what, like point blank period. He has to go, and I just basically picture the next year's Rockets looking like that Will Smith standing in an empty room meme where Harden is Will Smith, and he's just kind of looking around. Where is everybody? Like what happened? Oh, that's the that's the saddest thing I've ever heard in my whole life. Hey, well, you just picked them to win the title, so we have to have dueling approaches here. This, <laughs> we see it going boom or bust for the Houston Rockets, that's for sure, right? Yeah, that's fair. Hey guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side, your Sleep Number setting. It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. Okay, give me your next bold take. 
I I do not think that the Milwaukee Bucks will win the championship this year, but I do think that Giannis will sign the Supermax as soon as it is offered. Wow, that is super bold. Man, ESPN hates you right now. Uh, that's a, <laughs> I'm just kidding. They have been uh, pushing, I think, some of these Giannis free agency rumors maybe a little bit harder and faster than need to be pushed, but I think it is a legitimate question. What makes you think he will sign the Supermax? I don't know. I feel like it's it's he's just different than everybody else. That in every turn, uh, he's he's a very loyal person. He's the you know the Milwaukee Bucks are the team that drafted him. They're the team that took him in and you know made Milwaukee uh, a home for him and his family. Uh, and look, I think that. It's really interesting with how they've tried to build around him and their attempts to go all in uh, before free agency as opposed to keeping a few assets and you know pitching him on an ability to build around him throughout his prime. But when I look around, like he just doesn't seem like someone who will leave and until the job is done. Like I, I just don't see that in him and his personality and just the, he's not a quitter he's got too much uh, backbone uh, too much resolve he's not a quitter and you know unless they go out in super embarrassing fashion and it's clear as day that they really missed Malcolm Brogdon I just I, I feel like the fact that he gets better every year the fact that they have this system that just works so well around him and a lot of the issues that they're likely to have if they do not win the championship are because of his own flaws and you see the improvements that he's already making with the three-point shot and you know there's just there's different areas that we've talked about that he can still get better at and so i just don't think he's going to leave and i think that also when you factor in all that money it's the supermax uh he's gonna take it i love it i'm going to shift gears from one of our infatuations on this podcast to another one that's zion williamson we had some reports that he's back to practice with the pelicans this week but even before that i sent you my uh, next bold prediction which was zion williamson will come back this year And he will make us forget that he was ever injured this season. And I know that sounds pretty hard to imagine, given that it's been such a painful and long wait here over the first couple of months of the season. Where's Zion? Why are the Pelicans on television without him again? God, this sucks. Look how terrible they are in the standings and everything else. I am clinging to the memories of the preseason where he's just putting up monster numbers and crazy highlights and their offense looks so fun with him coming off, uh, you know, curls and, and going downhill. And I think that there are enough bad teams in the NBA right now. It's pretty shocking how many bad teams there are in the league that Zion's going to be able to come in and just do damage on a very regular basis against those teams. I'm not sure uh, on like, you know, 15 teams around the league how they're really going to deal with them. And I think that they're going to be uh, in an adjustment period of like just trying to figure out the best way to guard him. Uh, I think he's going to have a big time impact. I'm not saying he's going to win rookie of the year because he's got such a, uh, you know, a delayed start and, and other guys have been playing well. But I think that we're going to finally get our true Zion hype storm here over the next couple of months that we've been waiting patiently for uh, really since he left Duke. So... I had basically the exact same thing, except I took it one step further. I do think he's going to win Rookie of the Year. 
and man you are barbecue sauce bold all right keep going yeah so i mean john moran has had a tremendous rookie year and maybe he'll make this all look foolish but just i'm factoring in you know if they were to go into a bit of a tailspin and you know they load manage him as they have uh, a little bit this season there's really no other candidates that i feel like would i mean people want to vote for zion he's gonna be great He's in a position where the like the New Orleans Pelicans have been terrible without him, so he's positioned to have the narrative. He can, uh, you know, they're only uh, what five, six games out of the eight seed. If they I was going to say they could make a playoff push, right? Exactly. So if he's the, the 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 catalyst there, and the other candidates are like Tyler Hero and R.J. Barrett, and and I mean, again, John Moran is probably the the odds-on favorite, but. I don't know. I feel like Zion could win this award. Yeah, so as of today, Ja, ja has a 28-game head start. He hasn't played in every game for Memphis. That's pretty significant. I mean, I don't think it's quite like a Malcolm Brogdon and B-type situation. Uh, but we'll have to see how good Zion is and, and how quickly he is. I don't want to put too much pressure on him, but I just think like in the back of my mind, you know, my, my wheels are turning. I'm completely ready for Zion. My last bold take here real quickly I think we're going to have at least eight first-time NBA All-Stars this year. And I'm just going to give you some of the candidate names. I'm not saying all these guys are going to make it. But you got Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, Pascal Siakam, Bam Adebayo, DeMontis Sabonis, Malcolm Brogdon, Luka Doncic, Rudy Gobert, Trey Young, Devin Booker, Donovan Mitchell, Brandon Ingram. I think at least eight from that group can make it and maybe more. I think Chicago All-Star could look a lot different. You know, it could feel different uh, with all that new blood. Yeah, it's just a reminder that there's so much great talent in the league. And this next generation coming up, I mean, everyone here is super young, super inexperienced, except basically uh, Rudy Gobert. That's really the only vet on this list. Um yeah, it would be it would be all these guys are caliber and you could make all-star caliber and you could make cases for each one of them. Uh I'm glad that you put Jalen and Jason, my my two children on the list. That was very nice of you and uh it seems to me that they're both locks in my opinion, but I'm sure we're going to go over this at a different time on a later no, date. I I agree. I mean through <laughs> through gritted teeth, I think they've got to be there. Boston steadiness, so much of it goes to them. You know, and yeah. I think um, even just positionally too, finding spots for them on the rosters is not that difficult. Yeah, and I mean, there's a couple other names that you could we could throw on here that we've we've mentioned in the past. I think Spencer Dinwiddie is someone who is really making a push for for an All Star bid. Um, my guy Devontae Graham's fallen off a tiny bit, but I mean, but these guys are going to need name tags in Chicago if we're getting I, I this <laughs> many new players. This is going to be wild. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Did you have one more bull take? Uh, I have a couple more. Um, oh, one more. of them is, yeah, one of them super granular, but I feel like the open floor globe can handle it. Uh, and I just want to get on the record with it in case it actually happens. Uh, I think that Montrez Harrell will get a $100 million contract offer from the Atlanta Hawks this summer. Wow. You're going even with the specific team. I like it. Um, <laughs> are you, this sounds to me like you're just forecasting Travis Schlank looking for his Draymond. He's looking for, I mean, the Atlanta Hawks were in New York a, a couple of weeks ago, and I had a chance to talk to Lloyd Pierce for a while after his pregame scrum, and we were just chatting about how, uh, you know, 
everything about the Atlanta Hawks revolves around Trey Young. Not only Trey Young, but Trey Young running pick and roll. That's what they focus on, not like 24-7, 365. That's what it is. They want to be as effective as they possibly can in pick and roll with Trey Young. And John Collins is a superb pick and roll partner. But Montrez Harrell is, I mean, I think he's a next level pick and roll partner, as we've seen with just how he operates with Lou Williams. And if you're trying to accentuate Trey Young's strengths without necessarily allowing his weaknesses to grow, I feel like Montrez is just such a perfect fit with how they want to play and what they want to do. I can see it. I think he's getting a massive payday this summer. I don't know. I mean, this could be a test like the Andre Kirilenko test with the Brooklyn Nets, right? Where remember he got that crazy small contract that everyone was like, okay, like what is Prokhorov yeah. up <laughs> yeah. to? If the Clippers find a way to keep Montrez Harrell this summer on a number that's like significantly less than what you're describing, which I think is a pretty accurate representation of what his market value is going to be, are the questions about Bomber and tampering really going to ramp up? Like, I feel like this is going to be a very interesting test case uh, for uh, the Microsoft Clipper ethics. You know what I mean? Yeah, that, I mean, I, th- I thought about that. I If he resigns there, you're right. It, it's going to be... And you didn't even mention the, I don't want to, you know, cast aspersions, but Lou Williams' contract, which is just absolutely abs- an absurd deal. Like, I, it, what is he making, $8 million a year, I think? And he's, you know, routinely one of the best offensive players off the bench in the league. Um, so, yeah. Well, look, Montres- we're going to get another investigation-type piece from Sam Amick <laughs> of The Athletic, you know, quoting anonymous rival sources saying, what are the Clippers doing? I, I think we could pencil that in if Montrez Harrell is back on a reasonable number for the Clippers. They will miss him, though. I think it's a, a big, looming potential story for them. Uh, it would be very, very difficult to replace what he does for them, and I think you're absolutely right. There's going to be monster mega offers for him from other teams around the league, as there should be. Um, what's your last bold prediction? I think that, and I wrote this down before Jonathan Isaac suffered that in, that knee injury uh, last night in Washington, but I think either the Orlando Magic or the Detroit Pistons will blow it up entirely, um, either before this trade deadline or, or over the summer. So what does that even mean for the Magic? I mean, what do they well, have to the, blow up? No, no disrespect to them, but like, who are they, who are they blowing well, up? Yeah, I mean, I think it's moving on from Aaron Gordon, finally. I think it's, you know, you have Evan Fournier, who's going to be a free agent uh, this summer. I think you don't re-sign him, or maybe you even realize you're not going to, and you trade him before this year's deadline, and then you have... I would love to see him moved at this year's deadline. I think he's a piece that could help a lot of teams. Uh, I don't necessarily love his overall game, but he is kind of a a proven scorer, plug-and-play type guy. Uh, the expiring contract aspect fits. Uh, yeah, to me, he he's should playing be great. Yeah, yeah, and he's having a great year. He should be on the market for sure. Yeah, and then I mean, moving Vooch, it's that's a tough trade market, and and Terrence Ross, the two guys that you signed this past summer. But I feel like they just need to to start all over. And and I mean, Fultz looks really interesting, which is good. He's I think he's going to be an NBA player. Um, so that's awesome. So, you know, rejiggering it around him, Isaac, uh, praying to God that Bamba is something. And then you have some, you have an interesting defense first nucleus nucleus there. Um, but like on the path that they're on, they just don't have any foreseeable way to get that number one offensive engine that they've not had basically since, I don't even know, since Stan Van Gundy was the coach. Oh, I hear you. There's not much 
reason to cling to what they've got. They've been kind of, you know, treading water. I think that their new front office, which isn't even that new anymore, has been like overly deliberate probably is the best way to phrase it. And I think Mm -hmm. they're reaching the point where like, hey, it's time to do something, shake it up, give the fans something to get excited about. All right, Michael, we got a bunch of awesome questions uh, from the Open Floor Globe. They came in throughout the holiday week, and I tried to pick out some of my favorites, and we'll go through a few of them. Dylan writes, after listening to the awards you guys shared on a previous episode uh, about the the All-Decade Awards, I thought of a few fun made-up awards you guys could possibly brainstorm, and I'll throw in my own answers. So he writes, the most iconic performance of the 2010s was LeBron 2012 Game 6 against the Celtics, with Kobe Bryant's farewell game a close second. Then Dylan writes, the most enjoyable period of basketball was Kevin Durant's insane month during his MVP season. Uh, You'll remember he had just the crazy consistency factor, uh, just night after night, scoring, scoring, scoring. He said the feel-good story of the entire decade was Dirk's championship run. He said the player who shouldn't be forgotten was peak Blake Griffin early in the decade. And his biggest wish of the decade was that Oklahoma City had waited one more year before blowing things up. Dylan, those are incredible answers to your own questions. So, Michael, I'm going to toss it to you. Uh, Do you agree with his uh, suggestions or do you have others that you want to toss in there? I I love these. These were really good. Um, I I 100% agree. I'll start with most iconic performance. that That would have been mine, too, I think. LeBron's Game 6, 2012, uh, 45 points, 15 rebounds, 5 assists. I actually went back and watched the highlights of that game in preparation for this pod, as painful as it was to my younger self, because it was in the garden and LeBron just ripped the heart out of every single person who was in that audience. Um, It was... A show. I mean, I it, like it's really difficult to go back and contextualize the pressure that he was feeling coming off losing the finals against the Dallas Mavericks in embarrassing fashion. No one really knowing if he was ever going to win a championship. And, you know, this was an elimination game on the road against the team that he left Cleveland to beat. If you lose that game, I mean, like, Spolster's probably getting fired. Uh, Chris Bosh is getting traded. Like, I don't know what happens to him, what happens to that the Miami Heat. And he just was ballistic. Like, I think he made nine of his first ten shots. Most of them were jumpers. Um, you know, it was really weird watching the highlights. He did a sideline interview with Doris Burke at halftime, which I, I don't remember being a thing that players did. Uh, on nationally televised games, particularly of that magnitude, but he was very stoic during it, did not smile, did not laugh, uh, said he played on playing the entire game. Uh, just a legendary understanding of the moment and you know him slaying demons with such force and just displaying his entire arsenal. Uh, it was it, it was just so impressive and remains one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen a basketball player do. No, no question. And like, imagine how many of the stories about him or the narratives about him change if they lose that game, right? I mean, the whole, all the GOAT stuff that really started to build up over the next few years after that uh, is not there. Um, you're talking about the possible fractures with the Miami Heat, you know, no question. I think some of that stuff could have come to fruition. You know, does Ray Allen wind up going there? I think that's a, you know, a, a question that's, you know, fair to ask. I mean, a lot of different things were at play. Uh, with that performance, I actually go back, you know, in terms of iconic or quintessential performance, 
I don't necessarily remember the 2010s as the decade of LeBron dominating and winning all the time. I remember a lot of it being the painful defeats where he couldn't carry teams over the top, if that makes sense. So Mm -hmm. I actually think the most iconic performance for him was game one of the 2018 finals, where he has 51 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, shoots 19 for 32 from the field, 10 of 11 from the foul line, and yet they lose in overtime because of J.R. Smith's blunder. I think the the kind of the 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 gap between the level that LeBron was on in that game and the level that you know his teammates in the, in the closing moments were on kind of signified a lot of the Cleveland era, especially when Kyrie was hurt. Um, you know, there was always these questions of like who can LeBron count on, um, and I also think that having him lose to the Warriors, I think it was a little bit iconic as well, just because. Uh, the Warriors, to me, kind of cracked the code with LeBron in terms of you know making the the big move to first get Iguodala, but then the second even bigger move to get Durant as kind of the defining uh, strategy on court stuff of the entire decade. And to me, that game kind of brought it all together, right? Like Golden State being kind of able to withstand even LeBron at his very best because he just didn't quite have enough help. Um, we can probably forget for history the part about you know the broken hand and the 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 rap that came later. I mean, we could probably just leave that out of the thirty for thirty. Uh, but to me, that was uh, the iconic performance. The the broken hand deserves its own thirty for thirty. I think is what you meant to say, right? It's just a weird look. <laughs> it's just a very strange look. What was your most enjoyable period of basketball? Just quickly. I I think it's Steph Curry's unanimous MVP in the 2015-2016 season when he was basically the most popular, at least it felt this way to me, he was he was the most popular human being on the planet. Um, and, you know, watching him play, it was just like you were, you're witnessing a phenomenon in real time and understanding that and still not being able to wrap your head around it. Uh, it was a season that felt like it set up what the next 50 years of NBA basketball would look like. And 50 years from now, it'll probably be the first thing I think of when I think about what the NBA should try to aspire to be, which is this wondrous and magical game and that pushes boundaries and uh, is just so entertaining. And so that's got to be it for me. I mean, I, I love watching him play during that season and I'll, I'll never forget it. No, you nailed this one, 100%. It was that season. And they start off 24-0. and And as somebody who had just idolized that 96 Bulls team, always picked them in the greatest team of all time conversation, 72-10, and seemed untouchable. Even the sneakers that they came out with, you know, the, the Jordan 11s, they call them the 72-10s. Of course. I mean, all of that, you know, mythic stuff, I was just so bought into. And I remember... In early December, when they beat the Celtics to go 24-0, and I remember sitting on my couch and thinking like, well, what does it mean for Jordan's <laughs> legacy if the Warriors just don't lose this season? What if they go 82-0? Like, are they, are they completely unbeatable? Is there... Are they going to be able to just pull a magic out of their... Uh, you know, pull magic out of their hat every single night the whole season? And... They didn't quite do that, but they did obviously have 73 and 9 season, rewrite the record books. Um, 
Of course, the playoffs were a different story, but that season, everything seemed possible, right? An undefeated uh, Patriots-like season throughout the NBA seemed possible. And so Damn. Uh, to me, uh, that's why I would uh, agree with you on that one. And Curry, of course, was right in the middle of all of it. It's uh, just a sensational season. What was your feel-good story? Well, barely beating out Dwight Howard's triumphant return to the Lakers. Wow. Uh, I, I'm going to go with LeBron. His sojourn back to to Cleveland, ending the title drought, uh, the block, just that whole. Uh, I guess I mean the first year was what was what it was. It was you know marred by injuries to Kevin Love and to Kyrie, but just that second year, um, that playoff run and that series in where he you know avenged the the loss the previous year. I just that. That was such a great series, and it's one of the more memorable ones because of, you know, it has the Draymond Green suspension, it has the block, it has uh, Kevin Love stopping Steph Curry, Uh, you know, I I just, uh, it has Kyrie Irving's shot, which... You know, if he never hit that shot, it's so interesting. I, I always think about this, what we would think about Kyrie Irving today if he did not have that shot on his resume. It's it's incredible. Um, just the, as you said earlier, like myth-making. That's exactly what that series was. And to watch LeBron win that third ring uh, in his hometown with the team that drafted him, uh, it was very special. I think that's another... Strong, strong uh, entry. I agree. Dirk's championship run, that whole title playoff run was sensational. That one deserves to be in there. For me, it's the 2014 Spurs revenge tour. Um, I just covered that team for almost their entire playoff run. I loved how international and global that team was. They had a guy seemingly from every single different country. And then Tim Duncan to come through like he did against the Thunder in the Western Conference Finals predict he was going to get revenge over a prime LeBron in the finals before the finals started, basically guaranteeing, calling his shot, you know, saying that the Spurs were going to beat the Heat and then going out there and just, you know, smacking them off the court and, you know, basically chasing LeBron out of Miami. Iconic for an underrated all-time guy in Tim Duncan. I I think that's one that should not be lost to history. Um, Speaking of guys who maybe are forgotten, uh, Dylan nominated peak Blake Griffin as a guy who shouldn't be overlooked. I agree with him on that one 100%. I think the early 2010s Clippers, him, DeAndre, Lob City, are have probably been forgotten a little bit by history in terms of how important they were to the rise of highlight culture, uh, YouTube, uh, the Twitter clips, GIFs, and all that stuff. I think that that was really the moment where the NBA became the social media sport, you know, where every single night Blake is just pulverizing someone with a dunk people are making body bags for brandon knight because of what deandre jordan did to him i mean it 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 transcended just memes and it became like this lifestyle where like you couldn't miss some of those games because you just didn't know what crazy thing they would do next night after night after night after night um i'm not totally sure we've seen a highlight creation uh factory quite like them since i mean maybe that's zion's destiny uh you know to loop him back in from an earlier conversation but those guys were out of this world i still think his dunk contest over the kia is a little bit underrated because people love to hate on it uh, but i'm right there with dylan i think he nailed this one uh yeah props to blake i feel like i agree with everything that you just said and the irony of blake griffin is that 
we were criticizing his inability to shoot jumpers and three-pointers when he was this athletic specimen. And then uh, the athleticism goes and he can shoot threes and everyone still wants to crap on him. So yeah, no one ever talks about him anymore either. That's the, that's the worst part. He went from being this guy everyone talked about in LA to a complete afterthought nationally. Um, I'm sure it drives him crazy. If I were him, I would really hate the media. (laughs) For sure. Um, and I feel like, you know, during the 2015 playoffs where they had that epic first round series that I was blessed to cover against the Spurs, where they, they, they win basically on a buzzer beater by Chris Paul in, in seven games. And then, you know, they, they lose, they end up losing to Houston after the, you know, that devastating uh, <clears throat> decline by them uh, in, I forget exactly what game, where they blew the bajillion point lead. Um but during that playoffs, I feel like Blake Griffin, you could have made a case that he was, you know, I, I don't know if he was the best player in the world, but he, you know, just all around, he was so good. Like 25, 12, and 6 assists, like just unguardable one-on-one. He had post moves. He had vision. He would take the ball coast to coast. He was he was great. And it's really a shame also just like the, the injuries that he suffered throughout his career because athletically he was incomparable. For sure. Let's uh, wrap up with Dylan's questions here. What was your biggest wish of the 2010s? Again, he had Oklahoma City basically not trading hard in when they did, running it back, trying to get a title. I wish that, I, yeah, I'm with, I wish Kevin Durant stayed with the Oklahoma City Thunder. I, I mean, it, that I feel like that would, like, we got to see the, the what, I think basketball fans who are curious to see what Steph and KD and Clay on the same team would look like, we got to see that. It was, it was predictably unstoppable. Um, I would love to see, you know, th- that Thunder team healthy, uh, him, Westbrook, uh, Ibaka, go up against the Warriors again the following year in the Western Conference Finals. I mean, that's just, that's what you want to see. You want to see teams that are just stacked, uh, heavyweight fights uh, year after year. And I feel like we were robbed of that, and it's unfortunate. Um, So that's got to be my number one. And I feel like we would obviously look at KD a lot differently, even even if he did not have a championship today. We would look at him a lot differently than we do, and I don't know if he would be a happier person, but uh, he, I just think his story would be a lot different. There's no doubt they're the biggest what-if franchise. I mean, KD, Westbrook, James Harden, Serge Ibaka, and then later Paul George, and then to like you know their postseason accomplishments, like what they have to show for all that talent, it's crazy um, that it never kind of really came together for them. There was multiple points where it could have gone different directions. Uh, I think that they're in that kind of biggest wish category. As a little bit more of a Oregon homer pick, I think my biggest wish uh, is pretty simple. It sure would have been nice to see Brandon Roy with good knees for his entire prime. Oh, man. Yeah. Wow. And, and you know, I'm even going to leave Odin out of it, but you could throw him into this conversation too. But the respect factor that B. Roy had from the likes of Kobe Bryant and you know, the other premier players at that position, how high he had Portland's offense from an efficiency standpoint at his prime years, and then just, you know, what what potentially would have been able to come from more postseason reps um, and more experience and, and just, you know, the, the teammates around him kind of growing up together, whether it's Aldridge, Odin, uh, the list goes on. 
I think the sky was a limit for that group. And, you know, you think about for some of this, it's kind of like your own biggest, biggest personal wish. Right. And for Mm -hmm. me to like cover a Blazers team with B Roy ascendant on top of the world would have just been wild. I, I can't, I mean, even the heroics he did have like against the Mavericks in the playoffs that one year, uh, his 50 point games, they just took the city of Portland to just a totally different level. Trying to imagine him in like a Western Conference Finals head to head, you know, against you know some other superstar level player like the Thunder um, or the Spurs, it just kind of makes my mind explode. So, not to be too dark and sad here, but I think you know just from a personal standpoint, that's probably my uh, my nomination. No, and if we had the as you said the the Lamarcus Aldridge, Greg Oden, Brandon Roy, that was the big three that they thought they would have for the next. 10 years or whatever it was and it's just a shame that we didn't get to see it no it's it's a it's a bummer that will last uh i think for lifetimes uh, for a lot of blazers fans (laughs) hey on a on a lighter note we've got two kind of funny questions to close this out all right luke writes what's up ben and michael this is an unusual question but look i'm serious let's say it's the nba finals game seven in crunch time if lebron james started kissing anthony davis not a single defender would be watching the ball, and that would leave Danny Green wide open for a three-pointer. Would LeBron and Anthony Davis be called for a technical foul, or would the points count? The rules say technical fouls relate to unsportsmanlike behavior, but I don't see how kissing would be unsportsmanlike. It's just very uncharacteristic. What do you guys say? So, Michael, Luke needs a clarification on the rule book. I need you to put on your, your Monty McCutcheon hat, uh, your Steve Javi hat here. Is it possible to distract your opponents by kissing on the NBA court so one of your teammates can hit a title-winning three-pointer? I I hope this is legal. Why, why shouldn't it be legal? It reminds me of the, uh, the, the barking dog play. Do you know what play I'm talking about? Where the, oh, the- of course. A high school classic where one guy gets down on his knees, starts making noises, <laughs> everybody looks over at him, then you do the inbounds to somebody else for a layup. Yeah, like if you fall for that, then you're distracted, then the other team deserves to, to score. Like that's just how it works. Uh, so I, if they want to kiss on the court and uh, let... Danny Green's man get distracted by it. I, 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 this is a very bizarre question, but I, I don't see anything wrong with it. <laughs> I think it's a great question. Uh, what's the best defensive team in the NBA that would fall for this right now? Because there's certain teams out there who just, they already don't have a clue, right? Like I'm picturing the Atlanta Hawks. It doesn't even matter what the Lakers do on offense. Atlanta Hawks are going to be clueless and completely hopeless. If they started kissing, guys might just walk off the court and think the game's over, right? I mean, they just have no idea what they're doing out there. But I also look at a team like maybe the Utah Jazz or the Milwaukee Bucks. Giannis might blow up the kiss, right? He might go in there and start guarding them and trying to kind of insert himself into the sandwich and just trying to screw up the... I mean, I don't think he would be distracted. I think he would still be playing hard. So that's kind of the spectrum from... Hopeless, completely distracted by the kiss would be the Hawks. To uh, completely locked in, undistracted by the kiss would be the Bucks. What's like the best team along that gradient that you think would still be capable of being distracted? Yeah, I, I, I gotta be. I have no specific team here, but it would be interesting to see. You bring up the Hawks. Like, would Brook Lopez still be in drop coverage? Would he come <laughs> up to the point of attack? Would he, like what, how would that affect him and the strategy and the schemes that they're trying to employ? That's that's more what I'm interested in. 
I'm I'm picturing your Houston Rockets title dreams going kaput because the Rockets turn their head <laughs> to watch the kiss and the whole thing passes them by. Luke, very creative question. I don't see how it could possibly be ruled unsportsmanlike conduct. Um, I think it would not be as big of a distraction as you think in those high-pressure playoff moments. People are pretty locked in on the ball. Presumably, those two guys would not be kissing while one of them had the ball. So I think it would just be considered typical uh, off-ball action. They would go forward with the game, and Danny Green would not be as open as you expect him to be open. But thank you for that uh, very creative question. The last one comes in from Abdul. He writes, Indiana Pacers center Miles Turner is a brickhead. That's right. Miles just went on the Vince Carter podcast and said that one of his favorite pastimes is putting together 4,000 to 5,000 piece Lego sets. He is officially a member of the Open Floor Globe. Michael, I mentioned this one because longtime listeners know I love Legos as an adult. I love, nice. I really think Lego needs to do a better job of marketing to adults and having more sets catered towards adults. Um, and not in like an X-rated 21 and over strategy, so don't get me confused there. I just think they need to have more complicated sets, and uh, I really enjoy their city scenes where you know you can get uh, famous landmarks. Uh, it's a great way to remember, uh, you know, going to certain places uh, by being able to commemorate it and maybe bring it home with you and and have it uh, up on your mantle. It's fantastic that Miles Turner is into this. Uh, I do think. Maybe now we need to start saying he's a potential all-star candidate, whether he deserves it or not. You know, I, I do think he gets a brickhead bounce from this, no question about it. And I also mentioned this because I've been sick the last couple of days, and so I've been keeping myself busy with uh, you know a Lego Technic set that is the Land Rover Discovery, and I just want to give a five-star recommendation to this thing. They have thought of every possible detail, Michael. The pistons pump on you know their own individual timeline you're actually building every uh aspect of the engine they've got uh, the shocks on the wheels so certainly you could take your land rover discovery off-road if you needed to the lego variety it is incredible the attention to detail i've never really messed with the technic set before i think maybe i was always a little bit too intimidated as a child because it's really for engineers and, and people who are really diehards but I can't recommend this one enough. So everyone else out there, if you're looking to kill some time in January, if you're stuck with bad weather, maybe there's a snowstorm, whatever it might be, go check out the Land Rover Discovery Technics. It will be making an appearance on my Instagram story probably within the next week. It's a pretty long build, Michael. Okay, It's taking me a little bit, and I'm not operating at full mental capacity because of the sickness. Uh, but I will be showing off my wares here in the, in the coming days. And I'm sure you'll be anxiously refreshing to see it. I, I, why is Lego not a sponsor of the pot? Has <laughs> that been explored? Look, we're working on it, okay? We're not quite big enough. I don't think you understand how big of a deal Lego is, okay? Their major partnerships are like <laughs> Disney and Star Wars, right? So, Open Floor, we're not quite cracking their top 10 power rankings, but we're working on it. I have actually offered my, uh, my services as a free Lego consultant in the past to help them maybe, uh, update or explore their adult fan niche uh, in the past. So far, uh, I have not heard from the Danes. I I'm still waiting to hear from them, uh, but they're they're welcome to reach out at any moment. And as a matter of fact, I'm taping this right now with a, uh, a windmill, a Lego windmill next to me. I've got the Statue of Liberty. I've got the Louvre 
and I've got Big Ben all lined up here on my little uh, office desk. So if there are any Lego executives listening, I'm the real deal. All right, give me a, give me a chance. I can help you uh, expand your markets. There's no question about it. Hey, Michael, clearly we've gotten too deep into the Lego talk. That must mean it's time to call this rep- episode a wrap. Uh, guys, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy. And leave some nice words about Michael's heater takes, man. He's bringing it every single episode with stuff that you would not have foreseen. Give him a little shout out there in the comments. Um, I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. On Twitter at BenGolliver. Michael is on both Instagram and Twitter at Michael Victor. Pina and guys, don't forget, email us openfloormail at gmail.com. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We are so excited to be plunging forward into 2020 with renewed spirit. All right, Michael, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk to you soon, Ben.